Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The domain that we want to focus on and work in is how do we make sure that children and young people have the skills, the tools, the intelligence, the literacy, the nous, the savvy, everything that they need to navigate their own way safely through yep. that world. So if you like, that's the kind of the, the capillaries, the soft in- infrastructure of how you live in that space. Yep. One of the other domains that is also incredibly important then is, well, what's the skeletal framework around that soft tissue and yes. infrastructure? Great to be back with you here, as always. At least once a week, I'm asked about the business model that we have at Humans of Purpose, or lack thereof. The answer, as you may know, that is that as a social enterprise, we rely on a handful of sponsored episodes each year to fund all our operations. About a fifth of our podcasts annually are paid for by sponsors and promotional partners, which enables the rest of the year's content to be run sponsorship-free and totally independent. We have just two promotional spots remaining for 2022, so if you have a values-aligned product or service and want to reach our young and senior professional audience of Australian changemakers, of whom about 10,000 listeners tune in per month, we'd love to hear from you. Our wonderful supporter base here ensures we are regularly in the top 20 of the Australian management podcast charts. Not a bad result for an independent podcast competing against nearly 3 million other podcasts here and globally. Beyond sponsoring the podcast, another way to support the show and enjoy some great perks along the way is to become a Humans of Purpose member. Perks include access to every episode a few days early, ad-free, an audio note giving you more context on each guest and the episode, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and contact details for each guest, as well as a brokered introduction service. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. We are, of course, proud, as always, to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still doing a fantastic job at doing all of our socials and marketing content, and they are, in my opinion, still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Davies AM to the podcast. Sarah last came on the podcast a few years ago when she was the CEO of Philanthropy Australia, and she's now two years into her time as CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation and holds a number of board non-executive director roles too, including at Social Ventures Australia, Teach for Australia, and the National Museum of Australia. Sarah is one of my favourite people to talk to and one of the most brilliant people I'm lucky enough to have in my network. Notice her unique approach to career planning and perspectives on philanthropy, social impact, and approaching new leadership roles. We also talk a lot about positive psychology, how to raise and prepare our kids for the challenges of the physical and digital world, and what role the Alana and Madeline Foundation and other stakeholders in society can and might play to ensure our kids are safe, have their rights championed and protected, and are enabled to thrive. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah as much as I did. What a thrill. It's only been about four plus years that I'm back with Sarah Davies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me back, Mike. It's terrific to see you again. It's so good to see you. Um, I think it's been such a long time. We've had a global pandemic, bushfires, a child on my behalf, um, a new role on your behalf. It feels like a lot has changed. Excited to jump into it. Um, First of all, 
we're in the commons now and not in Marlowe's room, which is pretty cool. Well, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure the last time uh, we spoke, I'm probably in your son's bedroom. (laughs) Do you remember whether you were in a chair or a beanbag at that point? It was a chair. Definitely a chair. Good, because a lot of people complained about the beanbag. I don't think I could get out of a beanbag at my age. Actually, are still at my house in In the beanbag. beanbag. Yeah, they they couldn't leave. So that was a, that didn't turn out too well. But um, wonderful to have you here. I think um, before we get into everything, I'm curious, how has your past few years been and particularly sort of everything that's happened and the transition from Philanthropy Australia to Alana and Madeline? Look, it's on the one hand, it's been incredibly fast and swirly. On the other hand, it's been beautifully fortuitous and um, productive, I suppose. So I, I had given Philanthropy Australia a year's notice that I was going to finish up at the end of my contract, so I was there for five years. So we, we all had a year to get used to the idea. Is that the longest notice period someone's ever given for leaving a job? I don't know because I gave a year's notice in my previous role too. Oh, wow. Look, I just, I mean, it depends on why people leave. Yeah. I'm the kind of person that um, takes a job to do a job and I kind of give everything to it. And you know when you've done and, it. And I'm there to do that thing. Yeah. But I also know what I'm not good at. And so my view is when I've, added the best value I think I can add. They generally need someone else to do the bits that I couldn't do or didn't do particularly well. So for me, it's about the outcome and the purpose, not the role and the process. Yeah, that's that's quite fascinating in of itself. I mean, very few people would do that. And it strikes me as um, a high level of self-awareness, but also understanding the limits of your capability and um, ability to influence change maybe as well. That's a very generous way of describing it. You could also describe it as it's very selfish because I do what I like to do and what matters to me and I keep chasing that. I'll go with my interpretation. Okay, then. Thank you. (laughs) I think you should too. (laughs) Um, So what has it been like, I mean, being deep in philanthropy world versus being in a not-for-profit where you're promoting a a cause? um, How does it feel? Is it sort of like quite a a different thing, a different mindset or mentality to bring? Are you finding it um, sort of comfortable or uncomfortable in ways? Look, Mike, that's actually been my pattern. So I actually think the two worlds are, they're clearly symbiotic, Mm. right? They are about the vision of the kind of world that we want to live in and we want our children and our family and friends to live in. And they are forces, good forces for change in that space. So they're actually strongly aligned. They just have different levers of creating that change. And when I look back on my last kind of 20 years professionally, I have bounced between the two. And what I find with myself is if... In a, if I'm in a, a non-profit in a doing role, um, what energises me about that is being really close to the community and close to the change and having one of the things I think we have in this sector that is very hard to find is we really do have freedom to think and freedom to act. Yeah. And that is incredibly invigorating. Uh, we forget that sometimes. We, we do, mm. but it is quite unusual actually. And so if, if, if I'm in a service delivery or a doing role in a, in a change agent, after a bit of time what tends to happen is I start to see the repetitive patterns and I get frustrated at the ambulance always at the bottom of the cliff or even just the fence at the top of the cliff and it's just like, why can't we change the freaking rules, right? Why can't we just redesign the whole system? So, so then I move into a role 
that I think gives me access to some of the levers about how do you redesign the rules of the game. And so that's when I've moved into philanthropy. So whether it's the Australian Communities Foundation or Philanthropy Australia, because I think philanthropy is so powerful as our social change capital. We talked about this a couple of years ago. Yeah, we did. Um, So I think it is the most valuable dollar in play Mm. in the social change mix because it is the freest dollar. And then after a while, though, I get kind of frustrated because I feel like I'm losing touch with Mm. the community and the lived experience and the real, um, yeah, the the real grassroots experience of of how do you actually create change rather than influence it. So then I move back into a a doing role. I think that's a really interesting cycle because it it sort of takes you from working on the machine to working in the machine. That's right. And you must... um, You must, in a way, if this is me, this is what I would take from that, is that sometimes it's very frustrating working on the machine because you can't have the direct impact you'd like to see. And at that point, you just say, all right, it's time to step back into the machine. Exactly. That is a way more (laughs) articulate way of describing my life. (laughs) Well, I just think um, it makes a lot of sense to me Um, and I'm really glad that you you said that because, um, you know, having worked in government and also at peak bodies and everything like that, it can be really frustrating. I mean, you have a bird's eye view, but you can't be as directive in influencing change. You can do the thought leadership piece. You can bring parties together. You can influence collaboration, but you never feel like you're acting with the kind of clarity of intent or or purpose that you'd like maybe sometimes. Yeah. 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 And again, it's that, it's the freedom to think and freedom to act and, Influence and it's how do those various plays of power and change get deployed? Mm. And do you think? I mean, I would imagine that that rotation in and out just kind of gives you unique perspective in a way because you're coming at things fresh. Like if you were jumping from peak body CEO to yeah. other peak body to other peak body, yeah. or not for profit, not for profit, not for profit, yeah. you're kind of looking at problems maybe the same way. Yeah, and also I think if 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 I did that, it's f- for me to do that. I'd want to be inherently interested in the engine. Yep. I'm not interested in the engine. I'm interested in the outcome and the purpose. Yes. So for me, having trying to drive different engines to test which one gets yep. to the outcome faster, better, stickier, more sustainably, that's what interests me. If I was someone that was interested in engines, then I probably would stay within an engine family, if that yep. makes sense. No, it does. And when you decide that you've sort of reached the limits of your influence to um, make a change in an organisation and you're about to do the one-year notice thing, is that quite guttural in the response that you feel inside yourself as well? Yeah. Like, does your body tell you? Yeah, it does. Okay. And in fact, my body probably tells me before my mind catches up. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. It's fascinating, that connection, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so I just wondered really whether is it – I'm uncomfortable, let me ask myself why, and then you realise. Yeah, and and it's also, you know, when you reflect on how you behave or how you feel in a particular situation or conversation, and and I would often go home and say, "Why, why did... Why did that make me a bit excited or why did that make me a bit grumpy? And then it's like, oh, yeah, there's a pattern here. <laughs> I'm getting it. Yeah. And so when you walk into a new organisation like Alana and Madeline as CEO, yep. what are the first things that you think about um, or consider um, or do or start to enact um, often in movies, you know, you see people with 100-day plans and all kinds of ways of approaching yep. new roles. What is the way that you sort of bring yourself to a new role? Well, the first thing about me is that, that um, 
I only have ever been lucky enough to walk into roles in organisations where I've already decided or identified that their end games align with my values and yep. my purpose. So that thing about the why and the purpose is already very clearly established. Mm. And I have actually known the Alana and Madeline Foundation for a long time when I was at REACH. Um, we actually did some things together. So, And I've known the people there for a long time and had for many years great respect for their work. Yep. So they were not unknown to me. I was probably unknown to them, but they were not unknown to me. Um, and so from the moment search consultant said the name of the organisation, my stomach did a quick flip. Oh, that's the exciting flip. Which is the exciting flip in me, which was like, yes, okay, this, you know, we're after the same outcome here, this is exciting. So that's kind of already already happened before I start. Um, When I joined the organisation, it's it's strong, it's in a good place, it had a terrific CEO beforehand, it's got a great leadership team, there was nothing broken Mm. Um, and that was, uh, in a way, a real luxury because what it gave me was space and time not to have to decide mm. that we needed a plan or we needed X, Y and Z. It was not an emergency rescue no. situation. And after about six months into the role, the board asked me to do a kind of six-month reflection um, and that I, I had a, there was a real aha moment for me because those six months I found truly invigorating and incredibly liberating and and I couldn't kind of immediately work out why I felt so free and excited in those six months compared to other periods in you know in my work life and I think it's because I genuinely had the space to observe and listen and not make any decisions because there was nothing broken nothing needed addressing it was really an opportunity to float around all the content areas and the process areas and the people and the programs and the stakeholders and the partners and the beneficiaries and genuinely allow my curiosity to explore it all without any other agenda. And it was a real lesson for me and reminder about as leaders in organisations how important it is to keep that balcony view. Yes, so I'm quite a passionate person. I get quite fired up about things. Yep. And when I care about something, the danger is after a period of time, you know, I can be too blinkered. Yeah. And this was such a powerful reminder of the incredible um, opportunity that being on that balcony gives you. And L- Let me just um, demystify that for any listeners. So, I mean, I don't know where you learn. I, I learned from Leadership Victoria, the concept. Is that where you... Uh, ditto. Yeah. So, snap. <laughs> snap. So, we've both been through Williamson and um, the concept is basically taking a helicopter or from the clouds view down so that there are people on the balcony looking down at everything that's going on Then there are people who are boogieing down on the dance floor who are kind of in the mixer. So, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. So, you kind of that idea of being able to look down um, and reflect more than just making snap decisions. Yeah. And I'm very aware that, the you know, the more I have become embedded in the organisation mm-hmm. and got to know it, um, the increase of the danger is that I lose some of that complete objectivity yep. um, because I'll develop my own opinions and and there, there are things to do, there's mm. lots to do. Mm. Um, but it's, it's really important for me to keep reminding myself of how fantastic it felt to be free of agenda and to have that complete open curiosity. Yeah. 
to then see things in a completely different way. And I'm a bit obsessed with the whole reframing thing at the moment, so it's all kind of aligned. Let's get into it. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I know you wanted to. Yeah, I did. But before we do, so does that look like, um, are you the kind of person who just wants to sit down and have coffees with everyone in the place? Is it surveys? Is it kind of focus groups, a lot of group conversations and starting to, because you know the place, you know the purpose, you know the vision, and you've taken a strengths-based approach because yes. it's a place that's already in a good position. Yeah. So how are you gathering your information and learning about the... Okay, all of the above. Yep. So um, from a professional content perspective, mm. I have got a lot of learning to do. So we, we work in areas where I'm not an inherent professional. Yep. So it is fascinating and a bit scary and I need to kind of, you know, do that fairly quickly. Let's get across the technical and professional content. Mm. So that's a lot of reading. It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of asking questions. It's a lot of annoying all the experts to explain to me and tell to me. And it's, and it's constantly asking questions from then the process perspective. So how, what's our recipe? How do we design our recipe? How do we know our recipe works? How do we know our recipe is better or or not yeah. to other recipes. How should we be combining our recipe with other people's to make an even better one? Yep. That's a lot of those conversations. But it's also about trying to push a bit further into, well, when, where's the rigour behind that? Okay, mm. so where's the diagnostic? Where's the evidence? Where's the map of, of how that looks? Where's the system of how that looks? Yep. Um, and then from the cultural perspective, it's, how are people thinking and feeling? How do people feel about their freedom to mm. think and act? Mm. You know, what are the visible rules that we have? What are the invisible rules that we have? Mm. What's healthy? What's holding us back? And then kind of putting all that together. So we have had quite a lot of change in the last 18 months. We've we've had some restructures in some areas. We've retired a couple of programs. Mm. We've started some new ones. We have a new four-year strategic plan. Um, but I think the anchor behind all of that was um, and is an absolute, absolute explicit focus on our end game and our purpose. So what's our why all the time? Um, and I think sometimes, you know, if you are an organisation that has been running products or services mm. for a long time that are that have been going well and, and they're still pretty good, sometimes the means can become the end. Like yes. it can become the continuation of that product yeah. for the sake of that product as opposed to saying... Actually, if this is the end game, the outcome that we're after, is this really the best lever yeah. to get there? And I think sometimes how I think about that is, am I looking at my feet or am I looking at the horizon? Exactly. You know, like am I looking at how, am I too th- much thinking about what's going on in our organisation or do I think enough externally about what's yeah. happening out there? Yeah. And I think also, you know, you asked how how it's gone in terms of the external environment it is fast changing. It is confusing. There are things happening right now that I certainly don't understand. The whole oh, metaverse, what implication, all of that yeah. sort of stuff. And I think when when that degree of uncertainty happens, what we need is we do need some certainty. So one of the things that we did is having really crystallised our purpose um, and our vision and then our job in creating that vision. What we also did is we identified three key principles that would be our kind of anchor chain to that North Star. Yeah, nice. Now, the principles are good for us. I'm not saying they're right for everybody, but for us the three principles are that we're a rights-based organisation. So everything that we think and say and do and everything that we respond to comes from the perspective of, okay, what 
based on the UN Conventions of the Rights of the Child, what from a rights-based organisation and the rights of the child, mm. what's our framing on this? Yep. The second principle, which you've already mentioned, is that we're a strengths-based organisation. Mm. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's right for everybody, mm. but I think it's utterly essential for us. Well, I think when you're an organisation representing and working with kids, it's very important. Oh, hugely. Yeah. Now, it's easy to say that, but when you actually wash that through how you work and how you do things, yeah. fundraising, for example, yeah. that can be a very difficult conversation yeah. then to have. Yeah. But that is the principle that we have that we've committed to, that we are a strengths based organization. And by doing that it automatically defines how you work in certain areas. And the third principle that we have that many charities and nonprofits have is the nothing about us without us principle. Oh, terrific. So so those What a set. Those three are kind of like our three anchor chains to that North Star. Mm. Purpose for us. So um, rights, heavy consultation. Uh, not just consultation. Co- consulta- co-design. Co-design. It's, it's not enough to have a voice. It's about how do, how do the children and the young people that we are here for because of, how do they influence mm-hmm. what we do, how we do it, when we yes. do it, where we do it. Yeah. It's not just – so, yes, consultation is part of it, but it's got to go way beyond consultation. Yeah, yeah. and strengths-based. So, Absolutely. Yeah, explain that a little bit. So – this is the, the whole strengths-based movement, you know, Marty Seligman and positive psychology. Positive psych, and yep. what the evidence is saying is that for people to flourish, if we focus on accelerating and building and, and strengthening our assets and the things that we're good at mm. and the things that we enjoy, we will actually achieve that fulfilment and that flourishing much faster and more sustainably yep. than if we concentrate on plugging gaps, filling yes. deficits and identifying holes and filling yeah. holes. And I think that makes a lot of sense in the fundraising context. You know, sometimes yeah. it's a lot easier to come with the empty cap in hand and, oh, we're, we're well, really it struggling. Is. You know, That's we, right. We really desperately need this. We don't have this. And the strength-based approach sort of turns that on its head a bit yeah. and sort of says – Actually, you yeah. know what? We know what we're doing. Yeah, we're a really right. dynamic organisation. We have yeah. these great partnerships. Yeah. We've got our principles. Yeah. We've got some terrific programs. Why don't you join us and let's do something wonderful together? Yeah, and also more fundamentally from a children's and young people's perspective, mm. these demonstrating the extraordinary strengths and talents and assets that children and young people have, yeah. not what's wrong with them, yes. right? But what's more than yeah. right with them yeah. and how do we... So from a fundraising perspective, what, what we're looking to do is how do we bring people on board who want to just f- to further fuel yeah. and, and resource and ignite yep. the strengths and assets that are inherent in our children and young people so that they develop mm-hmm. the capabilities and the agency and the resilience and the skills and all those tools that mm-hmm. they need to be fully agent and fully present yeah. about designing and living the life that they uh, want. Sometimes, Sarah, I wish I was a kid now. <laughs> 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 you know, growing up in high school and everything, when I had my troubles, there was the words resilience and yeah. mental health and well-being. Yeah. I mean, none of this stuff no, existed. It didn't. No. Um, and I just think about how lucky I am now to have um, Marlo as my little um, test subject, where I can fully just load him up yep. on positive affirmation Absolutely. with everything that he does. Yeah, great poo on daddy's shirt, Marlo. Yeah. Great, great wee on daddy's face. Um, you're doing a great. Everything you're doing is wonderful. You know. It's, yeah, and to an much as I love you, Mike, <laughs> there is an element to that that actually wouldn't quite go that far. Wouldn't because, go that far. Because what we also need is this sense of grit. Yes. Right? So this is Angela Duckworth yeah. and her and her, yeah, yeah. her theory around grit. And 
Um, we learn through failure. We learn through mistakes. Mm. We learn through taking risks. And so sugarcoating everything and that mm. everything is marvellous is actually not going to give children and young people the skills that they need to have the resilience, yeah. to have the grit, to absolutely um, go through adversity because shit happens all the time for shit everybody. Shit does happen right? constantly. Uh, the good news is he's only four months, so <laughs> we, we, we might start him on the grit stuff in a little while. But it will change colour <laughs> when you do that. <laughs> but I must say the some of the stuff that I've been um, thinking, and we will get to the reframe, yeah, yeah. don't worry, yeah, yeah. I haven't forgotten, um, some of the stuff I'm thinking a lot about in the past few years and especially how I operate now is um, taking some of the principles from the Stoics, some of our great philosophers and yeah. particularly in that space of resilience, you know, um, I think we've got very used to being coddled by the convenient world we live in. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what are the deliberate challenges that we set for ourselves yeah. every day, every week, every month to make sure that the hardest thing that we do that day is the hardest thing we do that day yeah. and everything by comparison should be a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my headspace is sort of how do we foster resilience even in like mature adults like I'm supposed to be, you know, how do I change my mindset mm. a bit to be more resilient? Um, but I want to understand and unpick a little bit what the reframe means for you. So look, so reframing the, the, the movement, and it's not new, but the, mm. it kind of feels to me like the last four or five years has been a bit of a resurgence around yep. it, is, is the science or the evidence around the ability to look at a problem or a complexity or an issue mm. through a totally different lens and just by doing that you get such a different perspective of it that new solutions pop up and and different relativities pop up. So like two of my favourite books are Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, right? Yep. Which is a bit of that reframing thing. Yep. It's looking at a problem from totally different angles. Mm. And in the social change space, um, you know, some of the best resources I've found are out of the um, the Framing Institute in the UK. Mm. And there are two examples. The Framing Institute. That, yeah, Framing Institute or reframinginstitute.co.uk, I think it down. is. Yep. Um, two examples that just I think are so invigorating. One of them is the Joseph Rowntree Foundation in the UK. So Joseph Rowntree, Quaker, biscuits, chocolate, lots of money, um, humanist. <laughs> <A> great summary. <laughs> set up a serious foundation yep, and yep. they've been going for decades and they are seriously classy. Yep. They do excellent work um, and their mission is to eliminate poverty in the UK. And a number of years ago, I don't know how many ago, five, six, seven years ago, they took a good hard look at themselves and they said, look, through our decades of work, we know that we've helped thousands, hundreds, millions of people, but actually... We so haven't eliminated poverty in the mm. UK. Why not? Yep. Like, is it a problem that no one will ever be able to solve? Yep. Like, what is it? And they took a very bold move and they stopped grant making for a year mm. and said, we're really going to try and tackle the question of why we haven't actually shifted to our end game. Yes. And what they decided to do at the end of that reflection period was to work incredibly differently. So rather than, you know, grants to organisations in the sort of the traditional way, 
they are working in collaboration with a bunch of other civil society organisations to try and reframe how people think and feel about poverty Mm. because they're theory is that if people think and feel about it differently, they will interact with it differently. And yep. if they interact with it differently, then it will change. That's um, so different. Yeah. That's a huge flip. And and all their resources are online. So you can go to the foundation's website. They've got a whole section of their evidence, their research. I mean, they share all of that, which mm. is phenomenal. The other um, piece of reframing that um, – I'm really excited by is a contemporary Australian one and there was a report released last year or the year before I think called The Message Stick mm. and it's it, it the proposition is if we reframe how we think and talk about um That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Uh, self-determination of our Indigenous peoples and constitutional rights and First Nations Mm. change, then it might actually change how the population thinks and feels about it. Yes. And it is, you can, if you, I think it's Message Stick is the name of the report, you can Google it. Mm -hmm. It takes about 30, 40 minutes to read it. It is phenomenal because I was reading it and I found my mind changing and my attitude changing, just thinking about the difference between describing something one way and then describing it a different way and mm. the power of words to kind of set patterns in the mind that then change, you know, to, that then affect your attitudes yeah, and your behaviours. There is certainly a feeling sometimes when that stuff's done well that your wiring change, you can it feel does. the neuroplasticity yeah. sort of shift, can't you? And you just think, yeah. holy shit, what yeah. did this stuff work? Yeah, this just blew my mind. That's just, that's <laughs> When that kind of stuff happens, I just say that that just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, the only comparable example I've got was discovering behavioural insights in economics yeah. many years ago yes. and just sort of as a different way of understanding how people actually operate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that yeah. sort of system one, system two thinking. Yeah. And I just find all the time interesting examples of that filtering through to every day. Oh, um, absolutely. And in fact, one of the programs that we um, are, have designed and are running and are developing has been done in partnership with the uh, Behavioural Insta- Insights team oh, who are based in Sydney. So it came out guys. of the UK, which is around, um, and it's a, it's a program, a project that's been funded and supported by the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation. Fantastic. And it's about how do we build ethics in digital citizens. Yes. Well, um, I would like to talk to you. This is actually the ultimate segue into child safety um, and sort of the perilous state of where we find ourselves in this increasingly complex and more digital world. Um, I find myself sometimes terrified thinking with what we've got going on now with all the platforms, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, um, Snapchat, I barely use any of them, can't name all of them, and these are all, you know, TikTok is the kind of thing that if I didn't have a job and I wasn't doing other things, I would probably spend hours on it. Mm. I limit myself to like once a week, 20 minutes. It knows in three swipes exactly what you're interested in and it feeds it to you. Yep. And it's totally, it's more addictive than yep. anything I've ever experienced. So yep. that they're, they're ticking all the boxes from the neuro research they do on what people like. 
I really think to myself, what kind of world will Marlowe be walking yeah. into as a young man? Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to sort of bring that back. You know, what are the challenges today that young people face in, in terms of how they navigate that digital world and what are you seeing? Look, the, the challenges and the opportunities yes. are both limitless. Mm. And, and I think that's what's so difficult about this space because the moment you identify one of the really kind of scary, serious, dangerous challenges. In the next second, you can then think about one of the most exciting, exhilarating opportunities that yep. it gives. And yep. it's that polarisation in the same place and yes. at the same time, I think, that's so hard. And certainly when we think about the evolution of the metaverse coupled with artificial intelligence, augmented reality, artificial reality, mm. it, like it's mind-bending and we can't even I can't even conceive what that might look like. Well, particularly when you like reality a lot. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm really yeah. enjoying sitting yeah. here with you yeah. now in person. Yes. Yeah. People will hear this on a podcast, but this is more than enough for me. Yeah. I mean, more is just too yeah. much. So. Yeah. So, look, I mean, I don't. I certainly don't have any answers and I am not an expert and, mm. you know, this is one of the areas that I'm having to get up to speed with really quickly. But it seems to me sort of that there are kind of four broad domains, certainly from, from Alana and Madeline Foundation perspective, yeah. and they are all equally important, but they're different. So the domain that we want to focus on and work in is how do we make sure that children and young people have the skills, the tools, the intelligence, the literacy, the nous, the savvy, everything that they need to navigate their own way safely through yeah. that world. So if you like, that's the kind of the, the capillaries, the soft in infrastructure of how you live in that space. Yeah. One of the other domains that is also incredibly important then is, well, what's the skeletal framework around that soft tissue and yes. infrastructure? So what are the regulations? What are the rules? And we know we're playing catch up. Um, and this is where the, the previous government and the current government, I think, are trying really hard and doing some really good work in desperately trying to build and and catch up with that skeletal structure. Yep. So at the end of last year, we had the Online Safety Act, we've had the Anti-Trolling Act, we've had a bunch of legislative mm. rules to try and build that structure. We also have in Australia um, the eSafety Commission, and I think they are phenomenal. Yeah, they and do a I, great job. I think our eSafety Commissioner is a bloody legend. Um, and they are doing an extraordinary Julie job. Inman. Julie Inman Grant. You should get her on your podcast. Well, She's a I always knockout. take your recommendation seriously. So. Awesome yep. woman. Um, so, you know, you've got to have those rules. And and a lot of our work is in lobbying and advocacy and mm. trying to influence those rules. So that's the sort of the second domain. The third domain then is um, the culture, behaviour, norms, expectations of the industry itself. Yep. So the te whether that's the platforms or the software developers yeah. or the game developers or the infrastructure, all, all of that. Um, and partially that is... You know, that is influenced by what the rules of the game are, but they will never completely define how that sector chooses to work and the and how the public, whether they're shareholders or customers, influence that sector to work. Yeah. And again, our strategy is that we want to work with the sector to try and influence them. And a, and a really current example right now is that um, the tech sector in Australia is being asked to develop its sort of self-regulatory codes yeah. around how to eliminate child exploitation and child abuse material online. Yeah. Um, and at the moment they've 
released a draft set of codes and we've been given a month, the community's been given a month to respond to them. Mm. So we've done that and, you know, the first thing we said was a month is nowhere near enough to respond to this and we need a a, a better consultation mechanism with the sector. Mm. But there's that, so there's that third domain of how the industry, culture, ethics norms develop. Um, And then I think the kind of the fourth domain is and this, I don't know if this even can exist, but it's how do we as consumers, citizens, shareholders of this of this emerging world, how do we influence it? Yeah. Like how do, how do we've got power? Right? We do. And, and I think it's interesting, like um, one thing I, I think that I've seen in most of my peers, how they respond, you hear more and more people saying, oh, I'm off Facebook. Or vo- voting with your feet seems right. to be the most exactly. interesting way that yeah. people can well, do things. Well, look at things. Netflix. Right? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. So people can make decisions um, through their own usage. But the more I think about it, what I'd like to see is more of a compensated data rights model. So, yes. And and yes. I'm quite interested in that. Yeah. I don't know how it would work or how mm. it would happen. I imagine that somebody will somehow put it in the blockchain. That seems like a useful yeah. way to do that kind of thing. But um, given that social logins are now such a thing and kind of all our data is just open world, I used to think a lot about this idea that I'm enjoying a really great level of convenience and utility from these things that are inverted commas free, right? Yep. But they're not free because I'm giving the up trading value. Yeah, yep. I'm giving up this digital avatar of myself yep. so that I can have stuff sold to me constantly yep. and potentially sold onto third parties yep. that may have nefarious intentions. Absolutely. Um, so I think one way to compensate people for that in the knowledge that they are going to be exploited is to have a, a data rights model. Absolutely. And when you think about those sort of four generic domains we've just talked yeah. about, you can apply it in each of those. Yes. So in the regulatory yeah. domain, yeah. it can be regulated and required mm. that all of that is made transparent yeah. in a way that is understandable and clear to everybody, yes. no matter their age. What language. am I signing up for? Tell exactly. me what I'm signing up for. But in but but in the language and words that everybody will understand. Yep. So they need to describe it in a lot of different ways. You're right, simple once. language. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can regulate for the requirement for transparency. Mm. Within the then the, the the sort of the soft tissue domain about how you build that, we need to be teaching media literacy. Yeah. Right? We need to be teaching about mis, dis and malinformation to mm. school students from prep all the way through to year 12. Yep. And, and we can do that. So, you know, there needs to be that skill development. And the, and the critical ability to distinguish what is algorithm-driven junk yes. uh, versus what Absolutely. is real news. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the whole question of what's news anymore is a totally yeah. different topic. But I think it's staggering to see how many mature, um, well-aged people still get their news from social media. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, there are, there are a myriad of sources that people can go to. But, you know, what, what staggers me about child cybersecurity is that adults don't know how to do cybersecurity yeah. well a lot of the time. Yeah. So. And I think, you know, that's one of the realities of this, isn't it, is that, 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 that our experience and the products and programs that, that we can access are being developed much faster than our ability to oh, understand yeah. 
the consequences or the context of them. Yeah. And, and that's a real challenge. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative things we can say about the space, but um, I'll just reflect that recently in Brisbane at the Social Enterprise World Forum, I bumped into um, a younger um, girl who's doing some amazing things in the social enterprise space. And she, I just asked her about social media and, you know, what her, her patterns are like. I'm always curious what people are doing. And she showed me this program called Be Real. Have you heard about this oh, one? Oh, yeah, where you're pinged at a particular yeah. time and you've got to do it at yeah. that time. Yes. And the whole yeah. basis of it is yeah. to just yeah. show reality. Yeah. Like you can only respond at that time. Of the, yeah. You have to respond within yeah. when you get yeah. the notification. And then you end up with this feed of exactly what people are doing without any exactly. crap during the day. And that's that fourth domain where we yeah. have power. We have so, power. We can know, design these things. We're consumers and saying, actually, this Photoshopped, glossy kind of semi-fake, we don't want that. Yeah. So we're going to develop an alternative yep. and that's the kind of the, the sense of agency mm. that we need to be building in people. Yeah, that, that purity of intent in, in that sort of like a, a social innovation model around mm. what do we want, yeah. what do we want for our future yeah. would be really interesting. But then at the same time I feel like with these behemoths um, like the, you know, Amazon, Google uh, and some of these bigger guys, especially um, Meta, yeah. you know, the only way to get them to change is litigation. Well, and that is happening at the moment. Mm. So in the UK this week, um, there is a court case, there's quite a lot of media coverage, people can Google it, um, about a couple who are suing um, them over the, the, the death of their daughter who sadly took her own life um, and the parents, when they accessed their child's social media feed, um, found content that was pretty much exclusively dark and pulled their daughter into a vortex of negativity, depression, self-hate mm-hmm. and ended in the worst possible mm-hmm. outcome. And and they as a couple have decided that that's not good enough mm-hmm. and they have taken on the platform and are suing them and it's in court at the moment. Um, in the US there is a similar case following the leaks from Facebook about how much Facebook did and didn't know in terms of an evidence base around the impact of Instagram on on the kind of self-esteem, on body image yep. issues with, with young women. So that is starting to happen and actually we, part of Alana and Madeline Foundation is an organisation called Dolly's Dream um, and Dolly's Dream was founded by the parents of Dolly Everett who also very tragically took her own life after having experienced really extreme online bullying. Um, and again, they have dedicated their life to saying, we don't want this to happen to any, any other family. So that, you know, that we, ha- we have, do have some levers to pull in, in chasing this stuff and stopping it. Yeah. The other thing you, you talked about was the data sovereignty piece. Yep. Um, and I think the work that Lucy Bernholtz is doing at Stanford mm-hmm. is some of the leading work globally around data sovereignty yep. and trying to understand data sovereignty mm-hmm. um, and, and what it looks like and pulling back some power as consumers about we own our data and what we choose to do with yeah. it. Yeah, and I think France, as an example, is one country, um, yeah. you know, they surrender too often, but some of the things they're doing quite well... <laughs> <laughs> that was a cheap one. Um, you know, some of the things they've done quite well is I think they're the first country to have the uh, right to be forgotten instilled in legislation yes. so yes. that if you yep. want to, yeah. um, you know, have your baggage of your history and yep. you want to start afresh, you can yep. lobby to have You yep. can make an application to have that. Yeah. 
So that's very positive. And they also, in France, have this um, really interesting rule about um, when companies are allowed to contact employees and buy oh, yeah, legislation, not outside work hours. Not outside work hours. Yeah, and I, right. I think, um, you know, we, we can, if we have enough intent, actually legislate to limit the harms of technology yeah. and focus on the positives. We can. But it's just a collective will issue a lot of the time, maybe. Yeah, and also I think that that comes right back then to organisations like ours and plenty of others, you know, yep. Project Rocket, um, you know, a bunch of the universities do great research and work in this space who who are agents within trying to connect those four domains, the legislation, mm. the sector, the soft, you know, people, our own competence and skills, literacy, mm. digital intelligence and, and the sense then of agency that we have. So how do we bring them together? So when we talk about child safety now, would you say that um, there's a really rising emphasis on the cyber element of that as opposed to physical or it's both still a balance? And, oh, it's both yeah. because I think the research is still pretty clear that let's take bullying, for example, mm. that for those children and young people who report having been cyber bullied, the majority of them are also bullied in person yep. at school. So from a bullying perspective, school is still the the primary place where that takes place. And and when we look at more kind of varied or extensive fun, types of vulnerability, um, there are patterns. The same children are, vun- are vulnerable in multiple domains. Mm. It's not different. So, you know, that kind of core is still there. And in terms of, you know, it, it seems to me that the doer of the evil has more of the responsibility to change than um, the, the victim yeah. or the subject of that. But how much emphasis do we need to place on education and, and programs to sort of teach young people about how to sort of navigate that world? Oh, and I think build it's essential. And, yeah. you, know, we, we, you know, we've mm. talked for years about the three R's, yep. reading, writing, arithmetic. Yep. Well, actually, I think digital intelligence now is as important. Yep. So we've got IQ, we've got EQ, we need DQ. Yeah, I love that. That's so well said. Um, I think, yeah, just there, there are just so many things to learn about this world and it's happening at such a fast pace yeah. that without a proper framework and, as you said, the bones, the marrow, the, the skeleton yeah. around it, um, we're going to struggle. But the national curriculum in Australia as mm. of January this year now has a requirement to start teaching digital intelligence. That's great. Uh, you know, the programs that we run um, are national through schools. They teach digital intelligence. We partner with the DQ Institute mm-hmm. out of Singapore, so they're built against the global competency standards. Um, we've partnered with, um, I hope, depending on what comes out in the budget in two weeks' time, mm-hmm. the current government to actually develop a program to be delivered in all primary schools in Australia. And there are lots of other organisations doing similar kind of stuff, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's phenomenal. That's really good. Let me change tack slightly and just ask you about how you're enjoying um, your NED role. So SVA, yeah. and you've got a few others. Yeah, so I, I love them. How do you? So how is SVA going, first of all? Because that's an incredibly important organisation. Certainly is. So Social Ventures Australia. Um, and I've been on the board there just under a year. But I have known that organisation a very long time and I have worked with it in multiple... I've been a client, I've been a collaborator, um, you know I've been a friend. I, 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 I just I love their, their proposition mm. um, because what I really like about SVA is the disruptor element. Mm. The You know, if, if the markets and the patterns aren't working, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know... How do we disrupt it? Yeah. How do we create change? Yep. So, you know, 
25 years ago, the, the enterprise model, um, 15 years ago, the social finance, social impact bomb model. Yep. So I think, you know, SVA's next question is what's the next big disruptor? Or is the post-impact investing yeah. kind of yeah. uh, collaborative social right. innovation finance yeah. model? What is that? And, yeah. it's, you know, it's clever people from all sectors, um, you know, trying to solve big, hairy problems, which I, you know, I really enjoy. It might actually be a reversion back to the few years ago of the shared purpose. So just yeah. identifying yes. a shared purpose yeah. and going at it together. Yeah. And I, actually, I think that's really interesting, Mike, because, you know, one of the other things we've seen is the is the real beefing up, which I think is fantastic, of corporates who mm. started to stick their heads above the parapet and take leadership positions yep. on, as they should be, I think, on environmental and oh, social yeah. and cultural issues. And and releasing the power of that sector in that change space. So, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe that's what it should be. Yeah, well, like I quite like that idea and um, I think the Shared Value uh, organisation does pretty yeah. good work in that space, yeah. the Shared Value project, yeah. but it's sort of like um, an awkward year 12 or year 11 box dance where you've got all the, the guys here and the girls, and so the corporates are here, the not-for-profits yeah. are there, how do we get, them, do we to, get them to? But, th- but that is really evolving into a more cohesive yeah, so. uh, dance floor, yeah. so just to use LV terminology. I think so. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more understanding of what the needs are yeah. of both sectors and what the goals and shared intentions yeah. are too. Yeah. Yeah. which is great. Yeah. How do you balance um, not just all the things you do but switching between NED life and ED life? Like how is that? And um, So, look, I have, I've actually been a non-executive director longer than I've been a CEO mm-hmm. um, and I do remember in my first CEO job completely stuffing up at my first board meeting because I didn't actually realise the difference and thought, oh, I've been on boards for a while, I've chaired boards, I mine, I had to be a CEO, rocked up my first board meeting and, ooh, so blew it. Um, <laughs> so, like, the reason I do this because I want to because it actually matters to me and I get very excited about the possibility of the positive change that we can create mm. and I'm now quite old and have been doing this a long time and have actually seen that change delivered. So I know it's real. I know, you know it's, it's possible. I, it's more than possible. It's, it's, fa- it, it's, yeah, there, it's there, right? It's, you, I can see it. I can touch it. I've done it. I've, I know it's there. We've all done it. So that's an in, that's incredibly inspiring in, in wanting to do more. Um so my NED positions, I guess, fuel my need to keep pushing for that. But the other reason I I do it um, is that having worked in this sector for a long time, one of the problems I think in this sector, the challenges that we have is is our access and use of resources. And so one of the things that we don't have a lot of resource for or we don't prioritise resource for for various reasons that are quite understandable is professional development and learning of our leadership. So I I did Leadership Victorian 2004, mm. a very long time mm. ago. I don't think I've had a formal professional development experience for me. I've never had since one. Since then. I've never had okay? one until very recently. Right, so how the hell are we going to learn? Yeah. How am I going to get better? How yeah. am I going <clears> to <throat> work that out? So actually what I find from doing the NED yeah. roles is that's my PD. I, I learn I, I think so that's much. extraordinary. And, and I mean, like I have often said this, and I think this to be a truism that, you know, you, you are generally speaking the product of uh, the five people you spend the most time around. Yeah. So who are those five people? Because um, that matters. So, I mean, to put yourself in an environment where you're surrounded by probably a bunch of other stellar non-executive directors and yeah. directors and executives is just, you know, a few times over is a terrific thing. Yeah. 
I, I, I have learnt so much. So, uh, I mean, an example is I'm on the Council of the National Museum of Australia, mm. um, which is one of Australia's cultural institutions in Canberra. And um, I am not from an arts and culture background, right? Yeah. So this is... And one of the things that has really... Um, as a lesson that I really needed to learn was not just reinforcement of the power of story. I kind of understood that bit. But um, the importance of lack of judgment of a story. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. At every meeting, um, one of the curators built, brings in a, a little part of the collection so that you can kind of engage and oh, touch and feel with the, the purpose of the yep. story. And this particular curator brought in... Um, uh, some bracelets, you know, a couple of hundred years old, beautiful silver carved bracelets from, you know, the, the early colonial days and then also brought in the kind of the slave neck pieces and they were in the same collection. And my initial response was very judgmental and mm. emotional about the worth of those two pieces yep. and the worth of the story that should be told. Mm. And the director, who is a bloody superstar, kind of saw me struggle with that and has really helped me see that actually, as a storyteller, it's not our, in the museum's place, it's not their place to make the judgment, it's their place that everything needs equal airtime to tell that story. Yep. So, you know, that that sounds like a simple thing, but that's affected, well, I hope, it's how, a culture. how I yeah, go into Yeah, it's almost like a cultural learning yeah. experience that you have that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And yeah. this is another thing that's sort of passing through my head as we speak is that I would have thought um, engaging as a non-executive director in a few capacities helps you be a lot more mindful in your executive role oh, about um, yes. expectations on does. you, yep. you know, other stakeholders' yep. views, what they yep. might be thinking, how to approach things, yep. you know, give you that kind of ability to um, put yourself in those shoes. Yeah. yeah. And I think I was actually talking about this yesterday with, with some colleagues. I think sometimes people come on to charitable non-profit boards as directors perhaps with experience in other sectors and 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 think that their value or their role is as examiner um, or as inquisitor mm. you know to make sure it's robust and the fiduciaries are right and the government have we done a cost right benefit and, analysis uh, all that here. kind of stuff yep. and and from a process point of view all that stuff's really needed mm. but if the but the purpose of being on the board is not to be an examiner and not to be an inquisitor and not to be a tester. It is to help the organisation achieve its purpose. Yeah, nice. So the how you enter a conversation, how you ask a question is so influenced by what the objective is of that question. If the objective is to just test whether the CEO and the management have, you know, done rigorous enough thinking, that's actually limitedly helpful. Yeah. But exactly the same question asked to check is this really going to be the best for achieving our yep. purpose is freaking amazing. Yes. So I think, you know, that distinction sounds subtle, but I think it's really important. Oh, it's fundamentally important. And I think the the more boring board meetings that I've been a part of, that you, you kind of know there's that, there's that lack of understanding between the board and exec yeah. is where you really see a focus on really minute details yep. in a budget yeah. and people get buried in sort yeah. of numbery things um, and you don't hear the big questions, you know, like what? how is this helping us achieve our purpose? That's right. And is, and is know, the shape of this budget yeah. and the shape and the, the 
the sticky notes that are coming in on all of the dollars on mm. what you can and can't do with them yep. actually the right shape for yep. us to deploy them in the way we need to deploy them yep. to achieve our, yep. our objectives. Yep. Yeah. No, that's spot on. That's really interesting. Um, oh, I'm so pleased to have had you in. What an amazing it's chat. To, it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, Mike. I love catching up with you. I've got to show you some pictures of Milo and the family oh, I'm after this. looking forward to that. Absolutely. You knew I'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming in. How can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your, your wonderful work? Oh, well, um, I'm on LinkedIn. Alana and Madeline Foundation.org.au mm-hmm. is there. We're on all the socials. We've got a website. Anyone that's interested in talking to us, getting involved, helping, supporting, questions, please, please, please get in touch. Fantastic. Thanks for being with me. Delighted. It's great to be here, Mike. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.